0: Welcome to the CRISPR
1: revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast
2: about this cutting edge science. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of CRISPR-Cuts. I'm Dr. Beck Roberts and our guests today are Dr. Don Cohn of UCLA and Dr. Mark DeWitt, currently of Mammoth Biosciences. Today we're going to discuss their work on developing an ex vivo CRISPR therapy to cure sickle cell anemia. Today I'm also joined by Synthego's Head of Science and Applied Research and occasional podcast co-pilot, Dr. Kevin Holden. We're really looking forward to this exciting discussion. So thanks, everyone, for joining and let's get started. So firstly, could you both please give us a brief introduction as to your current title and role? Maybe Mark, if you could go first and elaborate a little bit on what Mammoth does.
1: Yeah, thanks, Matt. So currently, I'm an associate director at uh, Mammoth Biosciences, which is a gene editing company in the Bay Area. It's one of several sort of similar companies that spin out of Jennifer Doudna's lab at Berkeley uh, over the past 10 years. And at Mammoth, we're really focused on, at least in my part of Mammoth, we're really focused on developing in vivo directed gene editing therapies using the uh, nucleases that we discover or in a couple cases of license from Berkeley. Uh, And the advantage of our nucleated systems really is in their small size, which allows
3: them to be neatly packaged
2: into an AED or an LMP
0: for a And you, John? I'm Donald Cohn. I'm a professor at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. I am a, a pediatric bone marrow transplant physician by my clinical training, and I've done research on gene therapy with for blood cells for my, my whole career. So my, my lab does sort of more the basic work of developing new lentiviral vectors or working out editing techniques. And then we've also brought a lot of that to clinical trials. So, we've done trials over the years for several uh, primary immune deficiency diseases, most notably ADA SCID. Uh, we've also done trials for sickle cell disease, and that's what introduced me to Mark.
2: Great. Thank you.
3: Mark, can you tell us a little bit about how the Sickle Cell Gene Therapy Project got started at the Innovative Genomics Institute and who was involved in, in getting it up and started? What year you started to work on this?
1: Yeah, it, this is an interesting trip down memory lane here. The I think the project was first conceived in a meeting between Jennifer Dowdna and the eventual PI of the project, Dr. Mark Walters in Oakland. And from there, they brought in my PI, Jacob Korn, as the gene editing expert on the project and me, his postdoc, as well as uh, David Martin, who is also a hematologist, although no longer practicing. He ran a research lab in Oakland. And so that sort of put the core group for the first phase, sort of early pre-preclinical phase of the project together. And I think we formed that collaboration around 2014, late 2014, and me and, and an undergrad were kind of doing the gene editing, uh, working with David and his staff scientist, Wendy Magis, just to get the basic kind of protocol feasibility done. 2014, 15. And then we published a paper around the same time that Don joined the team in 2016.
2: Okay. And just as a follow up to that, how did the use of chemically modified synthetic CRISPR single guide RNAs enhance the progress of your preclinical work there?
1: At the time when the project began, and I'm sure it was the same way with Don's similar project down in, in his lab, Megan's project we were making our rnas by ivt using the you know new england neb kits and those are obviously unmodified and the quality is very inconsistent and so we actually first started using synthetic guides and i hate to say this to you guys but through a collaboration with agilent who were with their research guys we immediately noticed that the editing re- results were better when we use synthetic modified guides and viability was improved and the consistency of the results was also much, much higher. And so I don't remember the exact timing, Kevin, because this was a long time ago, but it's shortly after we ran out of our stock from Agilent and the collaboration kind of trailed off is around the time that Synthago first started offering modified guides. And we first started purchasing them for our project. That would have been in 2015 or 16, I want to say. We were early
3: adopters. How did it really like help kind of move the preclinical work forward? When you switched to using those, was it just, you know, was it the ability, your availability to get them kind of quickly and not have to make them? Was it, you know, also the editing and HSCs you know, what, what was kind of the driver? You know, you mentioned you saw some better editing. Was that the main reason why? Yeah, I mean, I think that being
1: able to get controlled reagents that delivered consistent results and also really gave us better editing results, both in terms of the indels as well as the HDR. Because remember, for this project, we're using a short DNA as an HDR donor to install the corrective mutation. So as I said, early on in the project, and especially in the first part of our CIRM TRAN1 grant in 2016 and 17, being able to get guides quickly from Syntego at high quality was an enormous boost to our research. uh, At that time, like protocol optimization and ultimately our CMC development in Don's lab. And, you know, back then in particular... There was really no other game in town besides Citigo. and despite ruling the roost, they the prices were very reasonable and the turnaround times were fast,
3: like a week or less. Don, can you tell us a little bit about how the project transitioned into your lab and and what was required to bring it from kind of this preclinical state into an IND submission?
0: Yes, sure. So we actually started in my lab working on gene editing collaboration with Sangamo in you know, probably about twenty ten twenty eleven. They approached us about working on HIV, and then we worked a little bit on ADA, and then we started working on sickle cell. And so we had done work in the sickle cell space. And then when CRISPR came along, a a graduate student in the lab, Megan Hoban, took that on by convergent evolution. We wound up with the same guide sequence as Mark and his group was doing, because that's kind of the the best one near the, the sickle mutation. And, and like Mark, you know, we started out we were making our guides by in vitro transcription, just with you know, the the, the simple approach. I, I think we we learned about the the modified guides from the publication, and so then we we you know ordered the same guide in that format, and we're also really impressed that the editing went up. I think about twofold. We got higher you know twofold higher rates of editing using the synthetic guides, and we never looked back.
1: You mean the uh, the Handel paper, the for the Stanford group?
0: Yes, yes, that's right.
2: Mark, your gene editing strategy is a non-viral approach where you're seeking to directly repair the mutation in the sickle allele. Can you tell us how this strategy differs from other approaches that are currently in the clinic? For example, the CRISPR Therapeutics Vertex clinical trial. What are some of the advantages to this approach that you're using?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really our approach, right? I mean, we were... I think both, both Don's lab and, and our labs up in Berkeley were thinking along very similar lines. And we were both looking at either single-stranded DNA or AEV donors. And maybe we can talk more about that comparison in a little bit. I think you know Don can maybe add some more color to this. But I think our belief at the time was that directly correcting the mutation is more penetrant because you get a corrected allele is 100% corrected as opposed to turning on a compensatory gene. Like fetal hemoglobin. We weren't sure about you know epigenetic editing, you know, again, this is more at the time. um we believed was epigenetic editing as editing an editing and enhancer of a transcription factor, or other more indirect methods, you know, had inherent complexities and risks associated more with the biology. Another sort of core of the belief was from our understanding and really Mark Walters' understanding the hematology of sickle cell disease, wherein sickle red blood cells, Or red blood cells that contain two indels that produce no beta globin at all have uh, less efficient maturation to red blood cells, and once mature, a greatly reduced half life. So that even a small percentage of genetic correction of the red blood cells on of either allele, right, would be able to produce a persistent, healthy, a cell that is persistent and healthy, and would thus outcompete the remaining diseased cells in the circulation. So that was sort of the rationale for pursuing direct correction at the time. And the only means to do that was to use homology directed repair and CRISPR, or you know, gene editing and homology directed repair using CRISPR or, you know, in Don's earlier days, ZFNs. And so we sort of early on knocked on that. I think both of our groups early on knocked on that as our sort of preferred approach.
0: It's a more physiologic, if you can correct the gene, that should be the ultimate in, in fixing the disease. And so it seemed like yeah, exactly. the, the most logical target.
2: So on that note, could you provide a comment on what recently went wrong in the graphite sickle cell trial? Because they were using AABs to deliver the HDR repair template. Could you just talk a little bit about that and other adverse events that are a risk here?
0: We only know, you know, they had a relatively brief press release just saying that they were putting the trial on hold. Uh, because of, of I, I can't remember exactly what they said in the press release about, a bad, I think, bad engraftment or something. So
1: Pancitopenia the, and a um, persistent anemia. It sounded like a marrow failure, but they didn't say that.
0: Right. A scientist in my group, Thulema Romero, had a paper about, I guess, about four years ago where she compared the single-stranded oligo that we're using in our clinical approach to an AAV vector for, 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 int- for correcting the sickle mutation. And what she found was that although the, if you look short term at the, you know, you edit these hematopoietic stem progenitor cells, you do a short term culture, the rate of HDR, the intended correction, was much higher with AAV than with the oligo. It was 15, 20% with the oligo and 40 to 60% with AAV. But when she put those cells into mice and kind of looked four months later, where you're interrogating what was a stem cell early on, they were really exactly the same. The oligo had come down from 10, 15% to about 5%, and the AAV had come down from 40 to 60% to about 5%. You know, we interpret that to say that AAV edits the short term progenitors better for the longer term stem cells. It's probably not donor that's limiting, it's probably the, the biology of the stem cells. The other thing mm-hmm. she observed was that there was significantly less engraftment of the cells that were exposed to AAV. And other people have have reported that since the time that you know AAV at the high multiplicity of infections you need to get enough donor in really the, the stem cells don't like it, and so we came into the collaboration with with Mark and and everyone up up north from us, thinking we're going to convert them to AAV, and they converted us to oligo because you know we we see <laughs> much much better the cells are happier hematopoietic stem cells are very fragile and you don't make more of them so only all you can do is hurt them as little as possible. And so, you know, we think the oligo is less less damaging to the cells than AAV.
3: Yeah, Don, just a to, just to follow-up from that a little bit, thinking about, you know, AAVs having to be supplied or single-stranded DNA oligos, guide RNAs, uh, CRISPR nuclease, and then, you know, before when you were working on, on ZFNs, you know, how important is it for companies that are kind of playing in this space and trying to democratize and advance these technologies How important is it for them to keep pace with the progress of the cell and gene therapy work that's going on in labs like yours?
0: It's obviously important. I mean, you know, we we all know this is like no field that we've been in has ever moved like the CRISPR field. You know, 10 years we've gone from proof of principle to, you know, third generation iterations. And so I, I think, you know, it's just, it's explosive and whoever's playing in the space needs to be looking all the time because there's just an advance every week.
1: I yeah. think Don has a cell paper out using a base editor.
0: Can you say that again? I just like hearing that I had a cell paper. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you and the folks in your lab have done a great job of staying on top of and continually evaluating these new technologies as soon as they're published. And I think that's recent cell paper by um, Macaulay et al., right? Right. Yeah, is illustrative of the fruits of that of that approach.
0: Right. So that's that's using an adenine base editor. And it, it's an amazing story. So I had an undergraduate student in my lab, Grace McCauley, who worked in the lab two years after she graduated, but she's now an MD-PhD student at, at San Diego. And she was really wanted to do base editing. She'd been reading about it. And we learned about this mutation in this rare form of severe combined immune deficiency, CD3 delta. It's one of the genes involved in T cell receptor. In the Mennonite population across sort of the plains of Canada and in Mexico, they have endemic in the population, a, a, a common stop codon in that gene. And so there's a very high incidence of skid in that population. I got contacted by a doctor who takes care of them in Alberta, Canada, and asked if we can make a vector. So I asked Grace Morgan, well, why don't you see if this is a mutation can be base edited, and it turns out that adenine base editing reverts it to the wild type. So she made contact with David Liu's lab who had developed base editing. And basically, in a year or so, had done most of the work for, for a cell paper in collaboration with Gay Crooks, a colleague down the hall from me, who has a unique system for turning stem cells into T cells. So we, we could edit cells from these Skid patients, give them to Gay's lab, and they could demonstrate that we've restored their ability to make T cells. So it was just serendipity and because and it, it was like I've never had a project move so quickly in in my career or end up in such a high-level journal.
2: I remember seeing yep. Grace's talk at World CRISPR Day 2022 actually about yeah. that.
0: She's pretty impressive. She was the co-captain of the track team at UCLA as an undergraduate and then wow. put all that energy into being a scientist and now she's just about finishing her first year of medical
2: school. Yeah, she was amazing.
0: Incredible.
3: I guess Mark, let me ask you this too. Like obviously there are supply chain issues when it comes to using some of the reagents used for CRISPR cell gene therapy like AV you know, I, let me ask you: Have you have you had experience any supply chain issues when it comes to the reagents for your IND enabling work or for the the upcoming trial? And how important is it to be able to kind of stick with a single vendor all the way through the process?
1: It's very important. I mean, supply chain issues is in selling gene therapy. It's it's a tale as old as time that supply chain is is vitally important to advancing your project in a timely manner and ensuring that your results are comparable across your preclinical and clinical studies. And I would be lying if I if I hadn't been, I'd be lying if I said I, I didn't learn that lesson the hard way. We probably don't need to go into too many details on that here. But I think most of us in this industry have had at least one or two war stories in that department. So it's it's just vitally important. And I think the main lessons that I've learned and learned from my more experienced colleagues in the CMC field is, the importance of maintaining a durable, consistent, collaborative relationship with your suppliers, ideally starting as early in your discovery phase as possible. That's where I think Synthigo, as, as far as guides go, Syntego really stands out because I'm not sure if there are many others that can offer screening scale research use guides for your lead discovery, medium to large scale RUO guides for your preclinical and pharmacology studies, and ultimately larger scale GLP talks and clinical grade material for early and hopefully ultimately late phase trials. So, you know, I wish there were more Syntegos out there where you could partner with the same company for at least the first half of development and ideally the rest of it, um, because I, I can tell you for a fact that changing suppliers when you're in the clinic is a real challenge.
0: Yeah, and I I would strongly second that. Less, lessons learned the hard way, you know. In, in academics, we, we we try and get a little trial going, treat a few patients, see if it works, and often you know don't have the budgets to go with a high quality vendor for vector or, or reagents from the start. And then if it's successful, kind of everything has to start again when you when you move up to the, the high quality reagent. So starting from the beginning as much as possible with something that can be commercialized really is critical if you're if you're translating.
2: So Don, can you tell us about the upcoming clinical trial? I'm not sure how much of this you'll be able to give away yet, but when and where will it be taking place? How many patients will you be looking to dose in the first phase, and then the subsequent phases?
0: Sure, no, glad to talk about it. It's public information. We're we're academics, so the, the the work has been funded through almost all of it by the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine (CIRM). They funded three successive grants for the Sort of the pre IND work, the IND enabling work, and now for the clinical trial. At this stage now, we're also co-funded by NHLBI's Cure Sickle initiative. And so they, they, they are splitting the funding with CIRM. And, uh, so we have a lot, a lot, we have a lot of people at our meetings. The plan is to treat nine patients in, in the trial. So there's an initial cohort of three, a bit of a pause to, to look for safety and efficacy, three more patients. And then if, if they all do well, Then we would lower the initially be 18 years and older, a consenting adult. But if we have success with the first six patients, then we would move on to an adolescent cohort down to 12 years of age.
2: Okay. And on that note, how long will it be before you know if the trial has had a real successful impact on those patients? What are your sort of clinical endpoints?
0: This is done in the context of a bone marrow transplant. So the patients, we collect their stem cells, they're edited, and then that's frozen away as the drug product, which is then tested for, you know, for for release. And then when we know it meets qualifications, then the patient comes back in and gets chemotherapy to get rid of the rest of their bone marrow in their body. So by giving the right dose, we can sort of eliminate the remaining stem cells that when we give back, what we edited, that repopulates their, their hematopoietic system. And so the first milestone is, do their counts recover? And so about 21 days to 30 days or so after the transplant, we want to see them, you know, making neutrophils, making platelets, needing red cells and, and not needing transfusion. So that's sort of the first sort of clinical milestone is have they had hematologic reconstitution. And at, at that point, we can start see, if we, if we look, we should be able to see edited cells in their circulation. So, you know, we're editing the, the stem cell. And even though we really care about the, the red cells where the gene is active, we should be able to see the edit in all their cells. So even in the first month, once they start making white blood cells from the transplant, we can see are are there edits there. So that's sort of our first glimmer of efficacy if if we see edits there. And then sort of over the three to six month period, if they're now making good red cells that won't sickle because they've had the gene corrected, we should see them not needing transfusions. We should see them making their own red cells with hemoglobin A, the the normal hemoglobin, a a drop in the hemoglobin S. And so blood tests should give us an idea. The main thing is that the trial calls for following the patients for two years. The real clinical endpoint is, do the patients stop having sickle crises? So patients with sickle cell will have these crises at various intervals, monthly, every two, three months, where they have severe painful crises because they're sort of this vicious cycle of the red cells. Sickling and, and occluding little blood vessels, and so we, we will record the frequency that the patients have crises for the two years before the treatment, and then the two years after. And that's really the, the main efficacy endpoint to sh- hopefully show that you know we've eliminated the most severe complication of sickle cell for the for the patients. And so it'll sort of unfold over about two years total, but we'll we'll get some hints along the way.
3: Mark uh, Don just gave us a really nice overview of kind of the clinical aspect of. Of the trial and of the, the drug product, if you will. Can you maybe take us back a, a step and, and walk us through gene editing strategy, right? So, you know, what exactly, you know, where are you targeting, you know, what nuclease you're using, and how did you assess sort of the safety profile of the gene edit that you were making? I'll just start from the
1: beginning. So, the cells are harvested from mobilized peripheral blood, so that's like an orange orange bloody bag of white blood cells. And we isolate the stem and progenitor cells, the CD34 cells, using a Clinimax device. So then we have these isolated cells and we culture them for two days in media that sort of mildly stimulates them to divide, hopefully not too much because you don't want to deplete stem cells by overstimulating them. And then we electroprate them with our gene editing reagents. And so the gene editing approach And the reagents we deliver by electroporation uh, consists of a Cas9 RNP that targets just downstream of the sickle mutation, along with a short, single-stranded DNA that encodes a part of the healthy beta globin sequence without the sickle mutation. And through homology-directed repair, a reasonable fraction of the time, that sequence is spliced into the first exon of the gene, reverting the sickle mutation back to wild-type. Uh, You also create a population of indels, which are genetic scars that likely destroy expression of the gene. So you have this mixed population. And for the reasons I described earlier, we believe that the corrected cells will win out in the end. So those edited cells are then harvested, frozen, with aliquots taken for the QC testing, as Don described, uh, before release, ultimately for the clinical use. So in terms of the safety packet for this therapy. Obviously, the agency had a lot of questions about off-target editing, and so we did a very thorough search for off-targets using a combination of seek to discover the off-targets. That's a method developed by Keith Jong's lab, like 2015, as well as a bioinformatics search, and then deep sequencing in pools of edited cells of all of those candidate sites to confirm an absence of off-target editing of, of concern, if you will. We also looked at translocations between the on and off target site. Another important part was that, is that we did have an off target at one time. It was quite significant, but we were able to reduce editing at that off target by adopting a high fidelity patient, a high fidelity variant of Cas9. That's the IDT variant, but it's also sold by Aldevron and it's widely used in the field. And that really pretty much solved the off target editing problem for us. In addition, the tox was, you know, for these kinds of therapies, the tox packet is actually pretty light. It consisted of mouse tox study with edited human cells uh, for, I think, four months. Uh, that and the the genomic genotox package was the sort of core of our safety
3: package for the IND. Mark, we we heard uh, Don talking a little bit about his, uh, his undergraduate student, Grace, who, you know, obviously worked on this amazing cell paper presented at Well CRISPR day and then uh, is now not only running track probably but also doing her md phd program but just kind of curious it you know you obviously have a lot of experience and you, you've learned a lot over the years gene editing hscs and then also going through this ind process do you have any advice for you know any researchers out there who are looking to forge a career in CRISPR cell therapies or a related field It's tough. I mean, for better
1: or for worse, I I like to work on things that I feel passionate about. The kind of things and with the kind of people that make you want to stay late, right? Get up early and stay late, not because anyone's making you, but because you want to. So I can't imagine operating any other way than that. And so I guess that's one piece of advice. Your mentors are really important, particularly early on. Don is an excellent one. There are others. Really thinking, taking some time to stop and smell the flowers and don't worry too much about what your ultimate goals are, knowing that it's still early and it's better to just learn and absorb and, you know, work on things that you are passionate about and save the empire building for the middle or latter parts of your career, perhaps. In terms of what specifically to work on, like the sort of future... These new technologies that move beyond double-strand breaks have tremendous promise and have advanced incredibly rapidly. Most of them are CRISPR-based. I think maybe even the next next generation will not be CRISPR-based. So, if you adopt and understand those emerging technologies now, early in your career, you, you will have an advantage over the competition. And so, I think that as as we discussed earlier, like really staying on top of what's the latest and greatest, and understanding and ideally. Finding the opportunities to practice with it is, is, is another thing that I would highly recommend to early career researchers because it's a long journey. You can take a look at Don's career or his, um, the talk he gave at ACCT last year, and you can see just how long the journey of one career is and all the different things you're going to see. And so just imagine that. It's hard to imagine seeing all those things when you're only 21 or 22 years old. Be prepared for a long and crazy career. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. Don, do you have any advices for early career researchers? You've mentored
0: a lot more than I have. The key to being a good mentor is to pick the right people to mentor. And then they're successful and you can claim claim it. But no, (laughs) I I I think it's, you know, you have to really go all in, as you said, and, and love the science and live the science. And so, you know, as a student, soak it all up. The biochemistry, the the biophysics, the molecular biology, the genetics—you don't stay in a lane. It's it, you have to know as much as possible. So just be curious, read a lot, learn, work hard—you know—all all those kind of good values, I think, are w- what it takes to get there.
2: So you've got heaps of experience taking CRISPR therapies and other therapies from bench to bedside, and you started well before CRISPR was an available or popular technology. So. Can you tell us a little bit about the positive impact of gene therapies in general, and then how CRISPR specifically has helped to enable this compared to those previous technologies?
0: So I was just part of a, a think tank on how do we get access to gene therapies for pediatric cancer and rare diseases, which you know there's there's a, a big problem with industry sort of disinvest or deinvesting pediatric diseases because they're such small markets. And um, so I put together a talk on this. And, you know, looking at what gene therapy has done, it's brought, it's brought eyesight to the blind. So Luxterna, the first approved U.S. gene therapy, restores functional vision. That's amazing. The, the ones for sickle cell disease from Bluebird and from CRISPR therapeutics, they make sickle patients stop having sickle crises. Every sickle patient ever would do anything to get that. The one for spinal muscular atrophy and the one for metachromatic leukodystrophy, terrible degenerative and neurologic conditions of children are being cured. So, there really are miracles that gene therapy is doing. And I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. I think, you know, we sometimes get so caught up in the day to day that we don't, we lose that big picture. You know, I've been in the field when nothing worked and then things worked when they were toxic, but now there are cures and there are seven currently approved sort of cell and gene therapies for rare diseases. And probably you know that many more for for cancer, and I just think there's going to be many many more. It's an amazing field because it gets to the basic fundamental problem for these diseases the, of the genes, and it fixes them. And so I think we're just at the very beginning, but there's there's so many possibilities of of treating diseases that could never be treated before with these you know direct gene, gene therapies.
3: Don, that's really a, a fantastic answer, and you know really kind of speaks to the. The life changing aspects of some of these medicines and the positive impact they're going to have in so many people's lives. And again, I think, you know, like what you and Mark are both doing in in order to push these things forward is really a noble cause. Just as we uh, start to wrap up here, we just kind of usually end CRISPR cuts and want to thank both of you for taking the time to talk about the, the sickle cell gene editing project and the trial, the upcoming trial. We usually like to ask our guests uh, both a fun question. So, Mark, why don't we start with you? Maybe you can tell the audience something, you know, when you're not developing cutting edge gene therapies or working on novel nucleases at Mammoth, you know, what are one or two things that you like to do in your spare time if you have any?
1: I don't have a ton and our first first kid is on the way, so I'm about to have zero. But in my spare time, it's pretty boring. I play
3: squash and golf. That's great. It's a good way to de-stress, right? So, there you go. And Don, what about yourself?
0: Well, so my, my pandemic side project was I got an electric piano. I, I took piano lessons as a kid and I hated practicing. But over the last now three, four years, I've gotten decent at playing, playing the piano. And so I, that's, and I've, I've got an electric piano so I can plug in my headphones at night and play and not wake up, wake up the house. So that's ca- kind of been my, my new thing. And I actually, it's the one thing that actually competes with work. Like I have to pull myself away from the piano to get to my desk and work on grants or papers. And then I, I've been a ski advocate for sin, since going to a lot of Keystone meetings when I was a fellow. So whenever I, I can in the winter, I try and get up to Mammoth or Mammoth Mountain, Mountain and Bioscience, uh, or Lake Tahoe and ski.
3: That's fantastic. I, I was secretly hoping you were both going to talk about your, your sports addictions with uh, Mark and the San Francisco Giants and Don with the Los Angeles Lakers, but uh, we can save that discussion uh, for uh, another time.
0: I don't yeah, we, had, we had a good season. We overachieved expectations. <laughs>
3: we <laughs> certainly did. That's great. All right. Well, Beck, maybe if you can just uh, close this up.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks, Mark and Don, for coming on the podcast. It's been great speaking with you both. Thanks for sharing your current work and making us really hopeful about the future of CRISPR gene therapies.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate
2: it.
0: Yes, it's really been fun to talk about old times not that old yet but it's still it's we have made a lot of progress over there over it we, we hope next year we will be hopefully curing some sickle patients
3: thanks for listening to CRISPR cuts i invite you to check out the synthego blog the bench for more great CRISPR content please send us any
2: feedback you have by contacting us on twitter and if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast email us at CRISPRcuts at CRISPR
1: cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthica. produced by Kevin Minu and me Bobby.
2: Additional production by resonate recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you soon.